Hey, Steve, uh, I'm feeling a little indecisive today. Uh, There's so much going on in the market right now. I'm I'm not really sure what we should cover on the show. That doesn't sound like a good way to start the podcast. What's on your mind? Maybe we can figure it out together. Uh, So I've been thinking a lot about the overall affordability challenges, of course, uh, and the real focus we're seeing across the country on downtown revitalizations, some of the generational change going on right now, you know, what this new generation of architects, designers, and planners might have in store for us. Will we be able uh, to build enough new housing to close the supply gap? Are accessory dwelling units the answer? Wow, I see what you mean. Fortunately, it's all connected. So let's cover everything. And I think I know just who can help us pull it all together. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. Today on the show, we're going to cover a wide range of topics in the housing world. From apartments to ADUs, urban revitalization to suburban change, generational changes in the market driven by boomers and millennials, and even what the planning and design students of today are thinking about. Fortunately, we're joined by someone who's uniquely suited to bring it all together, Chris Herbert, Managing Director of the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University. He's also a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, and he's a member of the Board of Directors here at Freddie Mac. Chris, thanks for being here. Great to be with you. A lot of us know the Joint Center for the signature reports it produces, including the annual State of the Nation's Housing Report and the biannual Rental Housing Report. But the Joint Center is much more than the individual reports. Can you tell us about what the Joint Center does? Sure. Um, So the Joint Center is actually 60 years old this year. Uh, We've been around since 1959. We were originally the Joint Center between Harvard and MIT. That was where the Joint came from. Uh, And we're the Joint Center for Urban Studies. So we studied broad uh, set of urban issues from housing to education to workforce development to urban planning. And we did that across the world. But then in the 1970s, when our funding model changed, we had to narrow and we became the Joint Center for Housing Studies focused just on the U.S. In the 1980s, there was a divorce between Harvard and MIT. Harvard got custody and we became the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard, where the joint now is between the Graduate School of Design, where urban planning resides, and the Kennedy School of Government, the public policy program. And our mission is to raise awareness of housing issues and to inform policy, industry, and advocacy. So we have a a pretty broad mandate to make information accessible to the world about housing issues, um, and less so as an academic center, where most academic centers are trying to speak to other academics. We're really trying to reach out to uh, people in policy advocacy and industry. Um, and we, we, we uh, take a look at the housing market that begins with a demographic analysis. What, what, how are households changing? What's the shape of the population? And what does that imply about uh, demand for housing? And then put that together with supply, look at market conditions, and then focus uh, on the, the key challenges we face as a country. Uh, affordability these days probably being the number one issue. So maybe we start with that uh, affordability challenge. So what are you seeing there? And, and uh, you know, can you offer some unique perspectives? Sure. You know, um, we, we have been talking about for the last 10 years probably a crisis in housing affordability, and this largely relates to the rental side of the market. We can talk a bit about the homeowner side, but if you look at now where we are, we have about 11 million renter households spending more than half of their income on housing. That's a, a little bit more than a quarter of all rental households. Um, things have gotten a little bit better from the, down, the, the real peak of the crisis in about 2014 when uh, 50% of renters were cost burdened, meaning spending more than 30% of their income on housing. 
Um, and if you look at where we were just, you know, the start of this century in the year 2000, it was about 39% of renters were cost burdened. So we've gone up a tremendous amount since then. Um, and, and that would be bad enough. But if you take the story back even further and go back to 1960, back in 1960, about a quarter of renter households were cost burdened uh, overall. Um, and so we've just seen the problem ratchet up decade by decade, some decades better than others, the last decade being among the worst we've seen. Um, and fundamentally, what it comes down to, perhaps not surprisingly, is the fact that income and housing costs are going on two different paths. Since 1960, median rents are up 70 percent, but the median income of a renter is only up 10 percent. And so decade by decade, that gap is widening. So housing just costs more than people can afford, and we haven't been able to, to bring those two lines back together um, over the course of that half century. So what do you see? As, so I mean, that's a really big gap that, that keeps widening over time. And and, uh, you know, we've, we spent a lot of time on the show talking about sort of the housing side of, of things, and I think we should come back to that. But um, that only 10 percent increase on the income side uh, is a little surprising over that period. So curious if you have any thoughts there. Yeah, you know, well, first thing to you know, bear in mind is I'm talking about just renter households, right? And so over this period of time from the 1960 to today, we've seen the home ownership rate increase. And so you look at who has been left in the renter market or who is, remains in the rental market has been the lower end of the income spectrum. So part of that fact that renter incomes have grown less strongly has been the fact that there's been some separation between homeowners and renters. So if we look at what happened to median incomes among homeowners over that period of time, they're up 50%. Now, mind you, the median cost of an owner-occupied house is up 120%. So it's not like the problem there isn't as, uh, as bad. But um, you know, the, it really does come back to the issue of income inequality in, in this country and the fact that we've seen the economy expand, but a disproportionate amount of the benefits of that expanding economy have flowed to people at the upper end of the income distribution. And people at the bottom, particularly since the, the late 70s, have not really seen much in the way of real gains. And so when people ask me, is housing affordability a housing problem or an income problem? I say yes, because <laughs> it is both. Um, but in many respects, you know, I think if we're, we're honest about it, there is a really fundamental income problem. And what can we do to bring income up among people in the bottom quartile of the income distribution? But as housers, we have less to say about that. Right. And I think that it's, it's interesting that there's been the case of uh, this extreme need at the really low end, in the end of the income distribution. And I think that in, in recent reports, we're finding that it's moving up the income distribution where more and more households are becoming rent burdened. Absolutely. You know, um, I would just say that in writing this last year's State of the Nation's housing report, you know, we're looking at the data on affordability. We're seeing that overall affordability, while still bad, was getting marginally better. Right? Mm -hmm. so as I mentioned, we had gone from about 50 percent of renters' cost burden down to 47. Uh, the overall number was down about 500,000. But then if you look around and read the headlines of cities across America, the issue about rental affordability has been front and center. You know, we know the fact places are considering just cause eviction, rent control ordinances, a whole host of things, given the kind of depths of this challenge. So when we looked at the data again, we peeled it back and looked at, well, how are these trends differing by income level? And so overall, that share of cost burden renters has come down since 2014, but it's up for every, when you look at individual income groups, particularly people making between thirty dollars and $45,000 and forty-five dollars and $75,000 a year. So we're not really talking about the poor by any extent there. We're talking about people working at decent jobs. But for that group, housing has become increasingly uh, unaffordable, even during this period of time when the economy has been growing at a great pace. 
Yeah, and I think you're right. That is leading to an absolute ton of attention. I know that as somebody who's covered it for so long, I mean, we we all have been talking about these issues for a while, and to see them, you know, gain prominence throughout the economy and and the discussions of policymakers is notable. I, I think another another piece is you know those long-term trends that you talk about and how just the number of households that are affordable to people at the at the lower end of the wage range is really shrinking a lot. Yeah, that's what we looked at again. What's changed over the last few years? Uh, we were tracking the number of rentals that were relatively affordable. Um, and so we used as a cutoff uh, units renting for less than $600 a month. Now, for those living in Washington, D.C. or Boston, where I come from, that may sound like a pipe dream. But as it turns out a substantial share, about 36 percent of the, the market, was renting for under $600 a month, uh, just as little as uh, 2012. But since then, what we've seen is the, the tightness in the rental market um, has really shifted the rent distribution uh, up. And essentially, it's happening in markets across the country. And so we've seen an enormous fall off in those most affordable units over the last six years. And so, and that's part of the reason why we're seeing these moderate income renters struggle to find a unit they can afford. Because what we used to refer to as naturally occurring affordable housing, that is housing that was affordable without having to be subsidized, has become scarcer and scarcer. And that's relevant to us in our business as we look to source loans that are affordable to households that are low income or very low income, and that population dwindles, the same as what, what you guys document. And certainly that's looking across the country, and I know that you also look all across the country and where situations are becoming worse. Uh, maybe you can speak to geographies a little bit. Yeah. You know, when we look at that, again, that share of housing units that are renting for less than $600 a month, you know, not surprisingly, when you look at places like California, uh, Washington State, uh, Virginia, you know, these are states where the those have become increasingly rare. They're actually not the states where we saw the biggest declines in the share of those units because they actually started out with pretty low shares. But when we, we sort states and say, what states saw the biggest percentage decline in low-cost rentals? It's places like Nebraska and Oklahoma and North Dakota and Texas and places that we don't think of now as being unaffordable. But in fact, the, the, the rents are going up across the board in those places and making it harder for uh, working people to find a place they can afford. So it's the, the nature of the affordable crisis, which has been centered very much so in these high-cost markets, is now being felt in markets across the country. So, so what's driving the, the challenge in, in Nebraska, say? You know, um, I think it's a combination of things. So on the one hand, one of the things we're seeing is the nature of rental demand has shifted as well. And so if you look back 20 years ago, there was definitely a sense that people started out renting, and as their income rose, they would move into home ownership. That's not happening at the same rate that it used to happen. And that's happening. It's true across the country. So when, when we looked at the change in overall renter households, over the last few years, after a decade of torrid growth, the overall growth in renter households is essentially uh, stalled. It was up a little last year after being down for a couple of years. But then again, when you look at it by income, We've seen that renters making more than $75,000 a year are up by $4 million over this period. And so what's happening is that you know, people are not accessing home ownership. They're staying long in the rental market. And now you have people with means who are out there looking for a place to live, and we're not building a lot of housing. And so what's that doing is pushing up rents for everybody. So let's talk about a little bit that um, you know, change in home ownership rate over time. And maybe can we tie that into a little bit of the generational change? So we have the boomers. We have the rising millennials. 
uh, and you're saying some delayed household formation. How does that factor into the overall supply challenge and, and household affordability? Yeah, well, you know, I think on the demand side, what we've definitely seen, as you mentioned, is uh, slower household formation. So nowadays, when people graduate from college, it's not uncommon for them to st- stay for a year or two at home or longer in order to get their feet on the ground. Happened to both of my kids when they graduated from college. Um, they did move out, but they were they were at home for a couple of years. And so back when I graduated college, the idea of moving back home was not on the table. Um, but so now I think that between you know delayed moving out on your own, uh, slower to get married, slower to have kids, for all those reasons, people are on uh, later trajectories to get them hit those milestones when you're interested and, and most motivated to to buy a home and settle down. So there's a whole you know, part of the demographic process that's a piece of the slowdown of demand for home ownership. And then you add to it the financial side, which is the generation of folks in their 20s have much more student debt than previous generations did. And at a minimum, what that's doing is slowing down the ability to save for the down payment and make that next jump up into home ownership. Right. So, so you said we're seeing people, more people staying in, in apartments longer, not building enough. So what what uh, what do you see some of the things holding back new construction? You know, um, certainly the the cost of inputs, so labor, construction materials, and the like, have gone up. Some of that has uh, gotten better in the last few years. Uh, construction materials had spiked, uh, lumber in particular, that's come down. But certainly there's a shortfall in the supply of labor. Uh, we don't have as many construction workers as we had back in the early 2000s. And so just to trying to ramp up the amount of construction that's happening, uh, makes it that much harder when you can't get enough folks on the ground to, to do that. Um, cost of land is a fundamental piece of this. If we look at what's happened to land prices over time, they have, particularly the last five or seven years, have gone up tremendously. Um, and that ties back into the regulatory situation we're in now, where it's become increasingly difficult across the country to build higher-density housing. And it so, both uh, means that it's difficult for builders to put up housing that's going to make better use of that land. It's going to take more time to go through the approval process. It means at the end of that process, you're probably going to face higher impact fees. And when builders are making a choice about what to build, given all those complexities, the idea of building housing at the higher end becomes increasingly what's uh, financially feasible. Um, and where there's demand, strong demand among that income group, they're concentrating development on, on that upper end of the market, both in the multifamily sector and in the single-family sector. And so it takes a while then for all of the, the new higher-end construction for, for the rents to become you know, affordable as the properties age to, to right. more modern. <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of hope that building a lot of high-end apartments will ultimately uh, produce a filtering process. So if we build too many high-end apartments, then the demand among developers to fill those up will, will steal some borrowers, uh, renters from the next uh, segment of the market and so on, causing rents to fall across the board. Part of the problem we've had is that we haven't able, been able to build too much housing, so vacancy rates are still low, so we're not really seeing that filtering process happening. Um, and as a result, when people are at the lower end of the market, whether it's owner-occupied or rental, they're competing for that existing housing. You know, And on the homeowner side, one of the things that's also an impediment is both uh, the fact that there's been a whole class of investors who have moved into single-family rental space in the wake of the foreclosure crisis. On the one hand, on the other hand, we've got a whole generation of baby boomers, people my age, who are ex- expressing a desire to age in place and are successfully doing that, and they're sitting on those uh, starter homes that a lot of today's younger generation would like to be able to buy. 
Right, and it's a lot of the factors uh, impacting the creation of new supply. The, back on the demand side, I know that you look at the composition of households, and, and you spoke to that a little bit. I think that, and, and, and just a forecast in general, and I think that there's a mismatch where there's going to be a lot of younger households uh, formed. Uh, and we get the question often of, as millennials age a little bit, will the demand for housing kind of remain the same and rental housing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But maybe speak to, um, is there a drop-off in the, in the forecast that you see and what is the composition of demand going forward? You know, when you look at, what we look at the age distribution of the population, there's definitely a bulge with millennials, which is right now centered around age 28. Um, and so if you look at the kind of age distributions, you'll see that it rises up to that age group and then it falls off as you go into the 30s, which we used to call the baby bus generation, but actually uh, was now, I guess it's Gen X. Um, and, but it's not called the baby bus generation anymore either because it was filled in by a lot of immigration, so it's not as much of a bust as it was. But to your question, so behind that bulge of people age 28, there's a fall off, but it's not a cliff. And there's actually a pretty flat age distribution. So what we would say is going forward, right now we're, we're kind of at peak millennial for the kind of urban rental market. And so the, there's the more 28-year-olds than we're going to have in any year to come. So that, there is a little bit of a peak there. That wave is going to move uh, over the next 10 years from 28 to 38. And so we think that that's going to create strong demand for starter homes. But behind it, there's another pretty, pretty large generation which will keep demand up. It's not going to be the same kind of boom we've had, but it's certainly not going to be any kind of a bust. So we hear that there's issues with uh, creating supply, and we hear that there's continued demand. So I know that there's not any one solution, but what are the kinds of things that you hear that, that may be helpful in the housing market? So if we go back to the, uh, what we were just talking about in terms of what are the barriers. So um, at the one hand, there are some kind of longer-term things we need to think about as a, as a country. One of them has to do with the supply of uh, labor in the construction field. And so we want to be able to expand the ability to build more housing. We have to have more carpenters, more people to do sheetrock, electricians and plumbers and the like. And those are fields that have... Um, been subject to more competition in this the economy we have. There are jobs that I think are not as uh, sought after as they might have been. Um, so I think there's a, a lot we need to do in terms of providing people training and incentives to go into those fields. And I say we, I think this is really the, the construction industry, the builders, the developers. Um, and if you look at who those folks are, uh, they are, for the most part, men. 97% of the construction sector are males. And if you look at the labor force, it ain't 97% men. So if we don't find a way to bring more women in, uh, we're going to have a hard time growing that labor force. So that's one piece is thinking about um, how do we expand the labor force. Related to that is how do we make more housing with less labor? And so I think one of the things we're seeing in this uh, building cycle is a much greater uh, energy being put into innovation around the construction side. And that, at one level, we hear a lot about modular, so building whole sections of a home in a factory and shipping them to the site. There's a range of things along that spectrum that have to do with panelization and and pieces of just uh, structural parts of a home. Anything you can do to kind of put into a more controlled setting that can use less labor, uh, more more robots, uh, use labor more efficiently, can help produce more housing with less labor. Um, So that's a piece of it. Um, I think the other thing we have to think about is it's still going to be the case that um, the cost of a home is outpaced people's income. So how do we build smaller homes and more efficient homes? And so, again, this speaks to the importance of the design professions and saying, all right, what we really need is a 1,200-square-foot house 
that people can live in as you know with with as much comfort as they would in a 1600 square foot house or apartment and so i think thinking about de design innovations that make better use of space is going to be a piece of this and then the last part of it is land and so ultimately that land is the one of the most important uh, cost elements of building a house we have to make better use of land which means denser housing Again, there's a design question of how do you put in denser housing in a way that fits in with existing urban fabric that still creates space and privacy that people like um, and gets through the zoning process and the, and the approval process. So the last piece of it comes down to regulatory relief, uh, allowing for this higher density, smaller housing units. Um, in, and if we're talking about in urban settings and transit-oriented spaces, it means uh, reducing parking requirements, which can add a lot to the development cost of a unit. So there, there's a, a lot in that, and, and I'm sort of naturally excited by, by the design component. So I want to spend a little bit of time there, in part because, you know, it's the Joint Center and you have, uh, you have a design component too. So, and you teach design students. So what are you seeing, uh, what are you seeing some of the new ideas coming out of, out of your students? Yeah, you know, so um, in my teaching, I teach a, a course on housing policy. Well, I have taught a course on housing policy over the last few years. It's called Housing Markets, Problems, and Policies. And it takes an economics uh, approach to U.S. housing markets. And I attract students from the, the public policy program, the urban planning program. I do get some architects and landscape architects. And so what I'm trying to do is give people a lens to understand uh, the nature of the market processes that are producing these issues and highlight where action is needed. Uh, I would say that looking at the student body, you know, there is a lot of interest in housing issues. And I think, you know, part of it uh, is that these folks who are young people today are growing up in this housing market and experiencing it themselves. They're experiencing it, meaning the challenge of trying to find affordable using a unit. They're experiencing uh, changes in neighborhoods and gentrification processes. Um, and so there's a lot of interest in what can we do to make housing more affordable. Um, you know, I think it depends on uh, what what, are, what are kind of solutions they're coming up with. It's partly where they what where they what school they come from. So the folks from the public policy school are thinking about the regulatory aspects, the finance aspects. But we had a, a great paper done this summer by an architecture student was focused on this question of how do we uh, bring down the cost of, of building a house and how can design uh, contribute to that. And she really broke down the whole the construction process and where do costs come into play and how can designers think about squeezing those costs out. So there's, we're seeing all those different disciplines um, really think about what they can do to try to address this issue. And are you seeing some, some new, uh, new design concepts, particularly on the, the smaller house? So. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of um, interest in small houses, um, and it's both uh, compact apartments, so, so you know, micro units, and how do we design those, and, and, and apartment buildings where maybe your own living space um, is just your, your sleeping area, and then you have shared uh, kitchens and dining rooms and other kind of public spaces, so the kind of uh, grouped housing or co-housing models. Um, uh, we're seeing backyard cottages or accessory dwelling units uh, really kind of grow in uh, both certainly in policy circles and the kind of the notion that the built environment is given. It's hard to say, okay, what we really need is housing of this type. And you look out over the landscape and you're saying, well, we're not, this building that's here is going to be here for a long time. So how do we work within the existing fabric that we have to try to retrofit it to have the density we need? And so given the fact that we have a lot of our metropolitan areas are existing single family housing, there's a lot of emphasis, I think, on trying to expand zoning to allow for 
uh, accessory dwelling units, these granny flats or cottages. And then the question becomes, okay, well, how do we design these so that they fit into the space available and fit within the urban environment? So seeing a lot of interest in, in small houses and how do we design them both to be good-looking but also to be easy to produce. Yeah, and that's a really fascinating part of the part of the market. And one of the things that I, I wonder about with that is just how scalable it is right? because it seems like it I – mean, can you do it deliberately or is it always going to be ad hoc? Right. And that's a big question. So I think, you know, there's been a lot of attention this past year to things like the uh, city of Minneapolis that is moving towards uh, eliminating single-family zoning. Uh, the state of Oregon has done that likewise, at least in jurisdictions of a certain size. So there's a lot of hope that by opening up the regulatory environment to, to the potential for this, but then the question is, will it happen? And I think for it to happen at scale, um, there are a bunch of hurdles that have to be addressed. And one of them has to do with, okay, so I have a single-family house. I now have the ability to put in an accessory dwelling unit. How do I do that? And so I need to hire an architect, right, so they come in and help me design that. And not everybody has the wherewithal to go out and find an architect. Not everybody has the money to go out and find an architect. So I think one piece of the puzzle has to be coming up with standardized designs that people can easily access in order to be able to have that solution be readily available. The second piece then comes, how do I pay for it? I mean, if this is something that's intended to be a way for lower-income single-family homeowners also to get extra income, they probably don't have a couple hundred thousand dollars sitting around to build this cottage. And so I think coming up with financing mechanisms that can help people pay for those cottages is going to be another piece of it. You know, and that also gets into some, I think, more innovation on that front too, where you can have kind of um, a rent-to-own models where you, know, you might have a business that's going to come in and help put in an accessory dwelling unit in my yard. You'll be the owner of it for some period of time. I might get a piece of the rent. But then over time, it shifts ownership back to me. But that way, I don't have to come up with the upfront money, uh, but then ultimately I get that asset. But there's, there's a whole host of ways in which I think we're going to have to solve the kind of design, construction, financing side of this if we're going to get this to happen other at a scale that, that we really need to have it happen as opposed to just an odd bod person here or there who are able to pull this off. It, it seems maybe uh, you know, closer to scalability is the the modular, the panelized. Yes. Um, so I'd like to go back to that for a little bit. Uh, one, uh, just from a design perspective, is there a, a fairly uh, good array of designs for that, or is it fairly uniform? You know, I just saw a presentation by a firm out of New York that has been really uh, innovating and, and uh progressing on doing more modular housing. And part of the presentation they were presenting to a group of architects was to say, you know, you're going to have to operate within a more confined palette, but there are ways in which you can still bring some design creativity to it. So ultimately what you're going to do in order to get the economies of scale you need is to to assign certain pods that are going to be 20 by 60, and that will then be able to put together into apartments and into buildings. so as an architect, where's the creativity in that? Well, it comes in a bit in then what the facade is. And so how do you, how, do you have a facade that then has some sort of interesting aspects to it? Um, how, how do you put those pieces together to create buildings of different shapes? Um, so you're operating within, it's kind of like trying to build uh, with Legos. You don't get, to, you, know, you have to use the <laughs> Legos, but you can build a lot of different structures with those Legos. So I think it's, um, it, it's confining in some degree, but it also opens up some opportunities, I think, for creativity along other dimensions. Yeah, that, that's always one of the great aspects of art is designing within rules. Mm-hmm. So, and, and do, you, do you see a lot of references back to uh, Masha Safdie and Habitat? And 
some. Um, you know, I think that there's there is a way in which there's you know there's there's no uh, nothing new under the sun, <laughs> and so you know there's certainly a lot of people who are saying we've tried this before, we've been down these paths. Um, and I know that I've had some students that were working in a studio this year were pulling books out of the GSD library from the 1940s and 1950s and even earlier. And they're looking at those and saying, well, what, what lessons can we draw from those? So there's certainly some, uh, some lessons from the past that are being incorporated into this. But um, I think there's a whole new generation of folks, too, who are trying to crack this nut from, from fresh. So I know um, you just had an event uh, with, uh, with the Ivory Prize up, up at the Joint Center. We, we just had Ken Colton on the show. Uh, and so you know, that, that was really a you know, fascinating set of, set of ideas coming out of that. And so how did the Joint Center get involved with that? So um, Clark Ivory had been on a group we call our Policy Advisory Board. It's a group of companies in the housing sector that provide philanthropic support for our center. And uh, he had left for a few years. Uh, Clark is a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints and had been uh, sent by the, by the church to Eastern Europe to do a three-year mission. And when he came back, he looked at the situation in Utah. He's the biggest home builder in Utah and saw just the time that he'd been gone, affordability had got, gotten so much worse. And he just was really struck by this and saying, we have got to do something about this, and it's going to take a new way of thinking. So he got up the idea of creating an Ivory Prize for Housing Innovation to try to both identify and hold up and encourage people to take on new innovative approaches for addressing this issue. He approached me because he knew the Joint Center to ask us what we thought about the idea um, and uh, our advice and how it might go about organizing and judging it. And he asked me if I'd like to be involved. And I thought, here's an easy chance for me to learn a lot about some interesting solutions that are being proposed. And so it was kind of a no-brainer to say I'd be happy happy to be part of it. Clark is a, a very good man and uh, really is, just means very well by what he's doing uh, in establishing this prize. And I think that there's, there's innovations that we talked about in terms of uh, design, um, you mentioned a little bit on financing. I know that the, as we look at different segments of the market, how to address the, the lowest income and, and how to think about building more are different. Um, do you see um, changes there or do you see needs that are talked about with your policy students? At the lowest end of the yeah. spectrum? There are you know, clearly needs there. Um, and I, there hasn't been as much conversation about what do we do about the lowest income households. I mean, I think that we are in some respects, um, in some respects, we have some good solutions. So we have two different approaches. One's a demand side subsidy with housing vouchers, which is to say there's enough housing out there. If I just give you some income subsidy, you can go out and occupy. We don't need to build new housing for you. And the other side of it, we have the low income housing tax credit program, which says we need to have new supply and we'll, we'll subsidize that, that construction so we have that housing available. Now, we could we could have a whole conversation about whether those programs could be improved. Are there, are there better ways to do the demand-side subsidies? Are there better ways to do the supply-side subsidies? And what's the right balance between those two? That's a conversation we should have. Uh, we haven't really had that conversation. I think in part because people who care about these issues uh, don't want to throw open the question to say that these are not the most efficient programs because then you might run the risk of losing political support for them. But we need to definitely think about how can we make better use of the subsidy dollars we have? Uh, because we have right now one out of four people who are income eligible getting that assistance, and it makes a huge difference for people who do. So at one level, I think the answer is we do need to be able to spend, we need to spend more as a society because housing is so fundamentally important to people's stability. 
Um, but we should think about how to do that in an efficient way. We ought to have that conversation. It's not really one that's been uh, top of the policy agenda. But it's certainly at the lowest end of of the income distribution. Like you say, that housing is fundamental, and and you see that when when there's insecurity there, there there's consequences. Absolutely, you know, and I think um, you know one of the innovations over the last ten or fifteen years has been the uh, promotion and adoption of a housing first model for uh, formerly homeless. So people who are on the streets. Um, and often have issues in their lives, uh, substance abuse, uh, victims of domestic abuse, mental health issues or the like. And in the past, we might say, well, we're not going to put you into a housing situation until we, you show that you've got your issues under control. Well, it turns out that your issues can't get under control until you have a roof over your head. So we moved to a model that says we're going to get you into housing, stable housing first, and then after that, we will be in a situation where we can deal with your issues. And it's proven to be enormously effective at helping to stabilize people's lives. And importantly, for a lot of the social service system that those homeless people were uh, impacting, there's enormous cost savings that can be had. So if you get people out of shelters, out of hospitals, into an apartment. So I think at the, the very bottom of the, of the spectrum, people who have fallen out of the housing market, there's a lot of evidence that suggests uh, getting people into stable housing has benefits both for those individuals, but also for society as a whole. Uh, and that approach shows a, a you know, remarkable uh, sort of complexity of thought to, to think beyond housing or beyond just in the individual problems to put them together, to put a solution together that spans all of them. Uh, and maybe there's some lessons from there as you get up the income ladder? Yeah, you know, I think that um, the, right now there's a lot of attention, as you said, Steve, on folks who are middle-income households who are facing these cost burdens. And I think the part of the reason why we've been uh, uh, giving that so much attention is because it feels like we ought to be able to do something about that without having to have uh, large amounts of public spending. But if you think about it, the kind of innovation that we need to address that issue, the things we've just been talking about, in innovations in construction and design and land use planning, all those things would also make housing more affordable for people at the, the lowest end of the spectrum. So if we can figure out a way to, to build housing more cost-effectively, um, that would benefit both people in the middle income distribution and also make our subsidy dollars go farther for people at the bottom of the income distribution. Yeah, so that, that uh, deliberate focus on that uh, you know, workforce housing area. New supply for that, that uh, you know, in the workforce housing space, uh, seems like if you're able to do that, then you get a faster realization of the filtering concept, maybe benefits both, both ways. Uh, are you seeing a lot of innovation in that space? Well, um, yeah, I think that that's a lot uh, where the, these modular cost uh, concepts and the panelized is aimed at. Um, right now, I think the areas of the country where we're seeing that innovation happen the most happens to be in the Bay Area um, in particular is where I can think of examples like uh, Factory OS, one of the Ivory Prize winners. You know, and that's a market where housing costs and land costs are through the roof. So uh, some of the, what they're doing is they're doing, you know, LIHTC developments, and so it's affordable through subsidy programs. Um, but in that market, it, those construction techniques or an approach to design are not going to be enough to make that housing affordable for the middle-income folks. So I think the question is, are we going to see that spread more to the middle of the country? You know, and back to your question about scalability, uh, one of the reasons why these approaches haven't uh, been adopted much in the past is that in order to have a big capital investment in a factory, uh, you have to be able to have steady production from it so you don't have it idle for months at a time. And it also has to be close enough to the areas where the housing's going so that the cost of transporting those modules doesn't outweigh the benefits of the savings and the construction costs. And so uh, there, there is a little bit of a, 
you know, economies of scale issue there that has to be achieved. There has to be enough enough demand and steady enough demand to be able to support those factories. And so we'll see if that will happen. There's also um, you know, Clayton Homes, who's a manufacturer home uh, dealer, has uh, also has modular factories. And so we're starting to see some of that penetrate into uh, not just the high-cost areas but more affordable areas where they're trying to build entry-level homes for, for people of, you know, $50,000, $60,000. Great. So you see organizations that already have scale adding a new, a new right. way of using that. And I think, you know, at this point we can tick them off on one hand, you know, <laughs> who's doing this. And I think the question is uh, hopefully within five or ten years we'll, we'll need all our toes and fingers and maybe yours and Steve's as well. <laughs> Right, and that's a lot of talk about uh, potentials and and the start and and new development. Uh, a lot of talk, I think, in that middle market that was Corey was talking about about housing preservation as well. Um, do you think that there's progress in in that, or wh- where do you think housing preservation sits? And by preservation uh, here, do you mean subsidized housing or um, just uh, that naturally occurring? I think the naturally occurring and trying to keep the middle of the market right. affordable. You know, there's certainly been a lot of attention on that. Mm-hmm. There's been some uh, some funding sources that have been developed, some philanthropic. Uh, I know that in Minneapolis, uh, I think it was the uh, McKnight Foundation was, was putting some money up for that. I know that in New York, um, there was New York City, there was a program that was put up to try to create some subsidy dollars to do this. I don't know of any programs that have been able to achieve any large scale, in part because the markets where this is happening are hot markets. And so if I'm trying to, you know, I identify an apartment building that right now is renting for, fill in the blank, $1,200 a month. Um, somebody recognizes it's got potential to go up to $1,600, $1,800, dollars a month. I want to buy it at the $1,200 a month price point and preserve it at that point. Well, the owner knows that they can push the rents up and sell it for a higher price. So I have to now outbid you. Um, and I somehow have to get access to that subsidy dollars to be able to do it. And you're not going to be very fleet of foot when you're trying to navigate <laughs> that process. And you're, you know, you're competing against you know, for-profit developers who they're in this game. So it's, um, it, it, it's been di- a difficult situation in this market context. Mm-hmm. I think one of the lessons we should take away from this is these are actions that have to be done during the down part of the cycle. Trying to compete at the up, the high part of the market means that you're going to be, you know, bidding against people at at, the, at high prices. And so, uh, we need to have a long run strategy, and we ought to be thinking about it. as prices come down, people are going to say, "Oh, you know, we don't have to worry about it now." Well, prices will go up again, and now's now's the time to buy. So that may might be a good segue uh, into a little bit on on the future because. Uh uh, foreseeing a down market seems to be a little bit challenging at this time. <laughs> it seems like we've been in a in an up market for a long time. We have. Uh, so what what do you th- what do you think uh, might evolve over the next five to ten years? You know, whether it be uh, new solutions or just you know shifts in the market right. generally. So you know, as I said at the beginning, the joint center always starts with a, an outlook on demand. So let's you know, over the next five to ten years, what are we going to see in terms of demographic drivers of housing demand? We talked about one of them. One of them being this this millennial generation, which is now around age twenty eight, moving to be thirty three and thirty eight. And so we definitely see that there's going to be strong demand for entry level home ownership over that period of time. But at the same time, there's still going to be you know decent demand for rental housing. We're not going to see that market fall off. But the, the, the big driver, really, if we look at in terms of demographic terms, is going to be the enormous growth in uh, older households. So my generation, the baby boom generation, who's already you know, moved into their retirement years. You know, the baby boom started in 1946. 
So the first baby boomers in 2011 started turning 65 at the rate of about 10,000 a day. Um, the bigger issue for the housing market is going to be when that population starts turning 75 and 80, because those are the ages at which uh, people become less able to drive, they've started having more mobility issues, and whether or not they're going to be able to be safely housed in their homes. So one of the things we're already seeing, we talked about it, was the fact that you've got this big generation who's uh, mostly in single-family homes in the suburbs, mostly saying they want to stay where they are, and mostly succeeding in doing that, which is kind of creating some glue in the market for those kind of entry-level homes. But as we look out another five or 10 years, we're going to have to think about how do we make sure that those people who are now in their 80s are going to be safely housed? Are they able to stay socially connected to their communities if they can't drive? Are they safely housed in homes if they don't have single-floor living, so they have to navigate stairs every day? Um, and so how are we going to better integrate health services, too, into those, uh, to those homes? So um, you know, one big issue for us over the next 5, 10 years is how do we make sure millennials have a shot at home ownership for those who want it? And another is going to be how are we going to make sure that uh, older boomers are safely housed? All right, so that's a lot on the, the home ownership side on, on the suburbs, but uh, what about cities? Do you see this uh, sort of continued uh, interest in urban revitalization? I do. You know, so on the one hand, I'm saying I do think that the millennial generation is going to be looking to own homes. Um, some of them will look to own homes in the city, but I think that in general, um, there's still a desire to have single-family homes for space and for privacy, and there's also a trade-off in price. Urban areas are almost by definition more expensive. That said... You know, I think we've seen an incredible revival in cities, over, certainly over the last decade, but even going back into the, the 70s and the 1980s. If you go back to the time when you know, uh, the Bronx was burning, when uh, the, the New York Post had the famous headline about a drop dead uh, to Mayor Koch. Um, you look now at New York City. I grew up in the New York area in the late 1970s. Going into Times Square was uh, an adventure. Um, and now it's like Disneyland. So, you know, I think that's taken place in urban areas across the country in that we have made enormous investments in cities. Um, we've brought a lot more people back into cities. Uh, and so cities as a whole are much more desirable places to live. And the fact that we've had all these people flood back into cities have created an enormous amount of vitality and energy in cities. That's not going away. I don't, I don't see, I think that the revival of cities, it's not like, oh, it's like every generation we move into the cities and we move back out. So I think we're going to see cities here to stay. I think there are a lot of people who are, you know, in their 20s and 30s now who stayed in cities longer than my generation did, who like that kind of living. I think they're ultimately going to face this kind of trade-off of space and privacy and the cost of homes. So I think we, we're going to see suburbs do better over the next decade. Um, but I think we're going to see cities stay strong, partly based on this uh, next younger generation that's going to come along, partly based on folks my age who will be drawn back into the city. We're not seeing a big shift in the proportion of people in their, say, 50s and 60s uh, moving into the cities. But just by virtue of the fact that this generation is so big, in terms of numbers, it's a meaningful number of people moving into cities. So. Um, I think we're going to continue to see cities as being strong, vibrant places. And I think what that also means is that the challenge of making sure that cities have a range of housing at uh, different price points is going to be an issue. One of the things we've seen, I think, over the last 10 years is that uh, cities have become concentrated of upper-income households who can afford to live there and then lower-income households who are in that kind of historic legacy of assisted housing. And how do we make sure that we have that middle part of the distribution in cities as well. And things that we've talked about earlier, like um, 
accessory dwelling units that added to single family homes. But greater zoning to allow for that missing middle housing to kind of fill in cities will be an important part of it too. Well, um, that's a great perspective taking us, you know, from, you know, overall demand, where we stand right now, why supply is not keeping up and the different segments of the market, and then into cities and what's needed there. It's It's been a great pleasure to have you here, Chris. And uh, thanks so much for all of your insights. It's been great to be with you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.